Father, as we prepare to open up your word, I pray that you give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the mind to comprehend, and the heart to receive what you would have us to receive today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to, to be with you all once again today. I want to extend a special welcome to the folks from uh, from First Baptist Springfield, uh, Virginia, who have had a, a weekend together um, in Harpers Ferry and have uh, joined us this morning to conclude their time together this weekend. So we're glad to have you all here. Um, so just for you to know, we've been walking through the book of Acts. Uh, we have just started our journey through the book of Acts. And so if you would be so kind um, to join us now here in week six, turn with me in your book, in your Bibles to the book of Acts together. And as you're turning um, in the scriptures to Acts chapter 2, almost every day, and I'm, I'm not exaggerating, I'm almost every day I receive an email or multiple emails uh, asking a question in some form or fashion of, do you want your church to grow? They're, they're church growth emails, like, and if you want your church to grow, buy this book, click this link, do this program, any number of things that they, that they send our way. And I'm going to be honest, at one time in my life, I, I believe many of them. I, I probably read like, every book on church growth that I could get my hands on early in my ministry. And when it came to the methodology that I incorporated early on in ministry, well, I'll give you a taste of it. Pun intended, as you see where this goes, um, with that when it comes to taste. I was 23, thinking back, uh, single. Leslie and I had just started to, to date and talk once again. You want more story on the once again, that's a story for another day. But we were in that early stages of, of life, and I was serving as a student pastor um, at a small church in, in West Tennessee. Now, in a little over a year after having been there, the, the youth group had grown from about 12 to 15 on an average uh, Wednesday gathering to somewhere between 35 to, to 40 in, in attendance. And I told them, thinking, okay, how can we grow this even further? I said, if, if you can have 100 students in attendance next week, I'll swallow a goldfish. I told him that. So the next week comes. Over 100 students in the room. Like well over 100 students in that room. Like overflowing in this, not a room like this. I'm talking much smaller room. People literally in the windows there. Like people in the room. Smiles on everybody's faces. Pats on the backs from parents and volunteers. The, the senior pastor, see him in the back back there? He's right there. Good job. Look at all these kids. Look at all these students. And in everyone's eyes, even my own in that moment, this is the epitome of success. Look at all these people. And yes, I, I lived up to my word. And I swallowed the goldfish. You're like, poor little goldfish. 
Now, I was very picky about the size of the goldfish. It had to be a small one. But it was a little plastic cup, a little bit of water, a little goldfish swimming around, and down he went. Later that night, <laughs> you think you know where this is going. Later that night, I'm, I'm laying home in bed. Couldn't fall asleep. And you know what I was thinking? What am I going to do next week? What am I going to do next week? Swallow a catfish? And in that moment, I learned one of the most important ministerial lessons I could have ever learned in my life. What you catch them with, you keep them with. What you attract them with, you attract them to. And I've never forgotten it. And I share this story because what we're looking at today is the greatest church growth movement the world has ever known. It's, it's the actual birth and the actual expansion of the church. And, and you know what we don't see anywhere in this text? Goldfish. No gimmicks. No tricks. No, no man-made worship experiences. What do we see instead? A church. A very young church. Faithfully preaching Christ. While possessing loving devotion to God and to one another. And from this faithful devotion, we see the Lord adding to their number day by day those who are being saved. So picking up in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a text that brings just so much amazement when we read it. Such joy, such encouragement. As, as long as I can remember reading this text, it has brought those things, those thoughts, those emotions, but so we're all on the same page this morning. I want to look at some of the context that brings us to this point. So to bring us here, the, the promised Holy Spirit has arrived at Pentecost, has filled the 120 who had been waiting upon Jesus as he instructed has filled them, and as they're filled with the Spirit, they, they entered out, exited out of this upper room where they had been meeting, and they exited out into the streets, and they began to proclaim the mighty works of God in languages that they had never learned themselves, but were speaking the language of the people, speaking the heart language of 
the people. So everybody who sees this, everybody who hears this is then saying what? What does this mean? <laughs> like, what is all of this about? Even some of them say, are these people drunk? Like, are they crazy? Like, what is all of this? To which Peter does what in response to their question? He steps up, steps up before them. The 11 right beside him, verse 14, and he begins to explain from the scriptures, looking to the prophet Joel, looking to the Psalms, explains to them all what they are witnessing, what this means. And as he does, he points all those who are listening to who? To Jesus. He points them all to Christ. Specifically to the truth that the Jesus that they crucified and that God raised from the dead is Lord of all. And how do the people respond? That's another question, right? They, they say, well, now what shall we do? They're wondering in that moment, like, what shall we do? Like, what do we do to have our sins forgiven? And notice how they're their, their question shifts from a question of perplexity of what does this mean now to that question of application. What shall we do? Again, how, how can our sins be forgiven? We, we've done this. How, how can we be forgiven of this? To which Peter tells them what? In verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, you want more on what that means, listen to the sermon from last week. But this is essentially, this is the invitation to follow Jesus. It's the promise being held out from the prophet Joel that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's come to Jesus. And how do the people respond? Verse 41, those who received his word were baptized. And there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Which means in one day, one day, the church in Jerusalem went from about 120 to about 3,120, which is awesome, right? We would all agree that is awesome. Yes, it's awesome. It's like eat your heart out, church growth emails. Like this is real church growth. And while this is exciting, you know what this also is from a pastoral perspective, from a discipleship perspective? Absolutely terrifying. Terrifying. Now, you say, well, how is it terrifying? All these people have just come to faith in Christ. How is this terrifying? Think about it this way. The 120 had been with Jesus in, in one way or another for the better part of three years, right? That, that's three years of listening to Jesus open up the scriptures and teach from the scriptures to them. That's three years of witnessing the miracles that Jesus performed. That's seeing thousands of people fed and people raised from the dead and casting out of demons, watching Jesus pray and watching Jesus interact and essentially just walking with Jesus, being discipled by Jesus and, and still, and still, they showed their fair share of confusion, did they not? They, they still showed their fair share of confusion and unfaithfulness in many ways along the way. So they never had it all figured out. But now by, God, by God's grace, what, what have they received? Who have they received? 
the Holy Spirit. We didn't have the Holy Spirit for the three previous years. And by God's grace, before Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, he, he opened their mind to understand the Scriptures, which again had not taken place the three years prior. So they're in a credible, greater, major, much more major advantage here that marks their lives that didn't over the first three years. But now what happens? The church goes from 120 to about 3,120 in one day. And mathematically, and if you're like the mathematician and I got this wrong, just say, yes, you got it right. All right? But it's close. All right? Mathematically and visually here, that's like walking into the hospital as a family of two, all right? And you walk out as a family of 52. It's like the doctor saying, congratulations, mom and dad, you have 50 new babies. I would die. Like right then and there, I would just die. Like they wouldn't just roll me out, not even resuscitation, dead on the spot. And yet, spiritually speaking, that's exactly what took place at Pentecost. The 12 apostles, the other members comprising the 120, now have the responsibility to teach these 3,000 new baby believers how to observe everything that Christ commanded. Because remember, what was Jesus' final instruction, his final words of the Great Commission before he left? Matthew 28, 18 through 20, saying, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. Right? Okay? So they've baptized them as instructed. Check. 3,000 people being baptized all throughout the, the baptistry, the, 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 the pools there in, in Jerusalem, a spectacle everybody around is witnessing and seeing. So they've done that. And now it's time to teach these new believers to observe and to obey everything Christ commanded and taught. That is a massively huge undertaking. All the feeding all the nurturing, all that goes into raising up these new believers. Not to simply count them in, in some total to look good as, hey, look how large our church is. But to make disciples who are then going to go and to make more disciples. That's hard work. Hard enough to raise one child. And now you're talking about 3,000 at one time, all babies. And that doesn't count all those who are what? Coming to the Lord day by day by day who are being saved. So my question is, how is this possible? How do you continue to train up disciples? And at the same time, continue to see new believers coming to faith in a healthy, non-gimmicky way? Answer? through the daily and consistent life of a healthy church. Which looks like what? Or specifically, what is a healthy church devoted to or persistent in, in doing? We'll look at 
four things and then an application from that. Number one, a healthy church is devoted to the teaching of Scripture. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching what? What Jesus taught them. They were teaching Christ from the Old Testament Scriptures that their minds were now open to be able to understand and to see. And what were the 3,000 new believers doing? Devoting themselves to this teaching. Why? Because they're hungry for it. They're hungry for God's Word. Like, like newborn babies craving spiritual milk. They were craving spiritual nourishment. They wanted to grow. And so like a newborn baby, they devoted themselves to this feeding what, ever so often? How is a baby fed? Continually. <laughs> I want more. So not just on Sunday, but gathering throughout the week to discuss even what they're learning. Getting in, trying to talk about the scriptures. Why? Because as one pastor so eloquently states, where the Spirit of God reigns, a love and a hunger for God's Word reigns. Meaning a healthy church is devoted to the teaching of Scripture. As they're hungry to learn and to discuss and to apply God's Word. Progressively, throughout their life, moving from, from milk as infants to solid food as we mature. Which requires what? Devotion. Requires commitment. Persistence. Intentionality. Desire. Baby cries out for, for more milk. A, a child cries out for more food. Why? Because they're hungry. They're growing. They need the food to be fed. And their bodies are telling them, you need this nourishment to grow. And then as adults, what do we do? What do we do to remain healthy? We need a persistent, healthy diet. Eat a meal or a snack just ever so often. What's going to be the result? You're going to become malnourished. You're not going to be healthy. And the same is true spiritually speaking. A healthy church is persistently devoted to the teaching of Scripture, both corporately and privately. The Scripture is the attraction. Why? Because Christ is the focus. Christ is the focus of the Scriptures. Sound doctrine and sound biblical teaching being as important to a church as milk is to a baby. It's our lifeblood. Gotta have it. Always craving more. Which is where the discipline of a daily Bible reading plan is so important. Daily feedings from God's Word that, that build the foundation of what? A healthy diet. But Jeremy, I don't understand half of what I'm reading. Even more than half of what I'm reading. You know what my response is to that, if that's you this morning? 
awesome. For real. Awesome. Why? Why did you say awesome? And I don't understand half of what I'm reading. Because you've got a lifetime to learn. And you're just getting started. Yeah. I'll admit, it can be overwhelming. I'm in Jeremiah this week for my Bible reading time. I'm like, oh, like, like so much there that's overwhelming. But the more you learn, the, the more you'll begin to pick up along the way. It's like building a snowman. Who likes to build a snowman? Like, some of y'all will wake up. Like, everybody likes to build a snowman, right? Like, but what's the hardest part of building the snowman? Getting it started. Right? Like to, especially if it's powdery type of snow, like to pack it together, to get it started, to, to get it <clears throat> rolling, that's the hard part. But as it grows, what's it do? It starts picking up everything along the way. This is why you got to be careful to only roll it in the white snow, because otherwise, if it's on the dirt, it's going to pick up everything as it goes. Same as you study the scriptures. The more you study, the more questions you ask, the more you're going to learn. Which is why everything you see when you're reading the text or listening to a sermon or whatever it is, everything that you see that you don't understand, consider it an opportunity for what? Another question. Another question. As questions help us what? To learn. They help us grow. Mom, Dad, why? 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 Like we quit with the why questions, but how what was happening? They're learning, they're growing. So never stop coming to the scriptures with questions. Also, try to make reading through the sermon text prior to Sunday a part of your weekly routine. It's posted every week at Wednesday in our weekly newsletter. If you're not a part of that, you can fill out the give us your email address and we'll be happy to include you. But read through the text ahead of time and circle and highlight and jot down questions and things that you have that are maybe encouraging to you or confusing to you or whatever those things might be, things that stand out of like, ah, I wonder what that is. And then come with those things, those questions already on your mind on Sunday. And watch how that changes how you listen to a sermon. You're going to go, you're no longer going to come as, as a passive listener thinking about the text for the very first time on, on a Sunday, but as an engaged student of God's Word, wanting to feast and to grow and have your questions answered. And when your questions aren't answered, you're like, and Pastor, what about this? And I'm like, great question. There's only 45 minutes here. <laughs> Let's keep diving in. We're plain and simple. A healthy church is devoted to the teaching of Scripture. And if this hunger, friends, if this hunger for God's Word doesn't exist in your life, if this hunger for God's Word doesn't exist collectively or individually, let's just be honest, it should be a cause for great concern regarding your spiritual welfare regarding our spiritual health as a church. Just as it would if a baby refused to eat. Realizing something's not right here. If you're not wanting to come to God's word, not saying you're, you're struggling with it, but if you're not wanting God's word to feed you, and you're claiming to be a believer, there's something not adding up there. 
So ask yourself this morning, are you hungry for God's word? Because where the spirit of God reigns, a hunger for God's word will reign. Number two, a healthy church is devoted to the fellowship of believers. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Which is where, if you're like many within the church, you're thinking fellowship to me and they devoted themselves to the potluck. They devoted themselves to socially connecting together. And these things, hear me, these things certainly can be a part of the fellowship of the church. Fellowship does imply devoting oneself to a, a shared activity. But more specifically, it's devoting ourselves to a commonality with one another in one another's lives. It's an interconnection with one another that extends beyond a a church potluck or participation in some fun social activity. See, with biblical fellowship, there's a generosity and even a sacrifice that's involved. Which is where verses 44 and 45 help bring some clarity telling us all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the the proceeds to all as any had need. Meaning the biblical idea of fellowship is closely attached to the idea of sharing and and giving. Sharing and, and giving of time and sharing and giving of resources. Which means biblical fellowship is costly. And this makes perfect sense when we think about fellowship in light of the gospel. Because we as the church are united together how? By the Spirit, through the blood of Christ. So maybe in, in some instances, <laughs> some instances, nothing else or, or very little else do we have in common but Christ. Fair enough? We're all coming from different walks of life with different interests, but we have Christ in common. Our unity and fellowship that we share is in him. The commonality we share comes as a result of what? His sacrifice, his gracious giving of his life for ours, uniting us with him by his blood forever, joined in a community of, of spirit-filled believers who are marked by sacrificial generosity and, and care for one another. There's an interconnectedness here that is created when we come to faith in Christ. It's manifested then in the day-to-day life of the church, made visible for the world to see our fellowship, our care, our sacrifice, our generosity for one another. But now a couple things here that I want to press into for the sake of clarity. One being the statement that they had all things in common. Because does does this mean that they literally had everything in common? Like no differences whatsoever socioeconomically? No. That's not what this means. So then what's being addressed here if that's not what this means? It's sacrificial generosity. It's an argument for the church to use its collective wealth to care for the needs of the church and to further the mission of the church. 
to the care for the body, and to accomplish the mission. See, these early Christians didn't come to faith in Christ and then go sell everything that they had. Maybe some did, but not all of them. That's not what this text says. It says what in verse 45? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So nowhere does it say that they just went and sold all their possessions in one full swoop. If they did that, that would leave them with what? Nothing. Another need arises. (laughs) How do you care for that one? You don't have anything left. No, they don't share it all at once. They, They share it as those needs arise. A need comes about. They sell, do what they need to do to care for that need. That's what we see here. Even verse 46 tells us they were breaking bread. Where? In their homes. Which means what? They had homes. <laughs> like they, they had homes. <laughs> now, it means that their individual wealth and their individual possessions and their belongings were used to care for the whole. So if someone had a home where portions of the church could gather, they used it for that purpose. If someone had a a need that, that they personally could not meet, the church came together to do what they could to collectively meet that need, even if it meant selling their own possessions to make it happen. So like Christ, they lived lives marked by generosity and sacrifice and mutual love for one another in the mission that God had given them to accomplish. And so I'll ask, does this describe us collectively as a church? I think it describes many within our church, but does it describe us collectively? Does this describe you and your family individually? Generous and sacrificial in your giving and your care for one another and to the mission that God has given. And let's just be honest. If we're not giving generously and sacrificially of the first fruits of our income to the church through the tithes and offerings, then the answer is is no. And if we're being honest, we, we have to really consider our connection with the church. Like, are we individually engaging with the body in such a way that we don't even know what these needs that go above and beyond our, our general ties and offerings might be, what, what might needs might exist? Or are we so disconnected that we don't know the needs of one another? Or is our connection with the church one that is maybe kept at arm's distance? I, I, it's, my, it's here for my convenience. Pop in, pop out. And are we being open enough with one another to express the needs that we have? Or are we just assuming that people are going to know without us being in community and sharing with one another? Opening up and saying, this is where our family is in need. Maybe not something financially, but prayerfully, encouragement-wise. Whatever those things may be, it only happens through general, genuine community with one another. 
so many questions we could continue to consider here as it applies to, to biblical fellowship. Number three, a healthy church is devoted to the breaking of bread. Which, like fellowship, we want to equate with what? Food. And you're like, no problem. I'm devoted to food. <laughs> like, we as a church have never had a problem gathering together for food. But the breaking of bread that they devoted themselves to was more than just a, a meal of, to fill their tummy. It's not less than, but more than. See, the breaking of bread that they were devoted to most likely refers to the partaking of the Lord's Supper together. So again, not arguing that a larger meal wasn't included in their practice, but arguing that the breaking of bread referred to here isn't the reference in reference to the larger meal itself, but in reference to the Lord's Supper. See, the Lord's Supper may have been and likely was taken together as part of a larger meal at this time. But the Lord's Supper was not the meal itself. Just look at verse 46 and notice how the phrase, the breaking of bread, and the phrase, they receive their food, are listed separately. The Lord's Supper likely taking place sometime shortly after the meal, probably while they were still gathered around the table together. They, they'd bring the remaining bread, they'd bring the remaining wine together and intentionally take time to, to remember Christ's death, remember Christ's resurrection and his promise to what? To return. And they do this when? It could have been every day, but turn with me to Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. I'll give you a second to turn there. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, and everything else that follows there is referring to a, a service, a time that they were together. So on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the Lord's Day, as they remembered Christ's resurrection, it says, when we, and who's we here? The we here includes all the repentant and baptized believers. All those who had repented and believed and followed the Lord in obedience to his command, be baptized. When we, the baptized, repentant and baptized church, were gathered together to break bread. So sure, they, they gathered together to partake of a meal, but they specifically gathered together to partake of the Lord's Supper as Christ instructed. So their baptism, our baptism, serves as the one-time public uh, act of obedience that, that uh, indicates our entry into the family of God, if you will. Those who are baptized, we who are baptized, indicating we are family. We are followers of King Jesus. And then, subsequently, the Lord's Supper serves as the continual family meal that repentant baptized believers take every time that we gather as the church until Christ returns. Which requires what of the family? It requires devoted consistency to not forsake the assembling and gathering together as the church. 
to make the weekly gathering a consistent rhythm of our life. And if we notice that someone is missing from the the weekly gathering, we follow up as to why. Not out of a sense of legalism, but because we care. For example, you sit down for your family meal at dinner. Family meets at this time to gather for dinner. When somebody's missing from the dinner table, what's your reaction? Where is dad? Where is Johnny? Where is Susie? Where, where is this individual? Oh, dad had to, to work later tonight. He's going to be a little late. Oh, okay. Let's, let's pray for dad while he is not able to be with us tonight. Oh, Susie has come down with a fever and she's upstairs sick. She can't be at the table tonight. We understand those things. And what do we want to do in those moments? We want to care for them in their need. But now if a family member has gone completely MIA from the table, they're gone for for weeks and months at a time, then what is there a reason for or cause for? Great concern. Hey, where's dad? I have no idea. Where is Susie? I don't know where she's gone. Oh, they just didn't want to join us for dinner tonight. See, we look at the church in Jerusalem and what do we see? We see a a devoted commitment to gather together for worship week after week. That's what the devotion of the breaking of bread signifies. A commitment to routinely gather together as the church. To be collectively taught from the scriptures. Fellowship together. To be reminded of all that Christ has accomplished and all that he promises through the breaking of bread. And to what? pray. Number four, a healthy church is devoted to prayer. Verse 42, once again, they devoted themselves to the prayers. The prayers, likely referring to both formal and informal prayers. But either way, there was a devotion to prayer. Prayer when they they gathered each week on the Lord's Day and, and as they attended temple together day by day. Giving praise to God praying for and with one another, praying for the Lord to give them boldness and to proclaim the gospel, praying for, for the Lord to, to, to be with those among them who have, they have sent out to, to proclaim the gospel, praying for those who they are hearing who are enduring suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel, praying for the Lord to provide wisdom and the discernment and praying for the Lord to commission and to save others for him, his sake. Pray for those that they're commissioning out for the sake of the gospel and to bring more people to saving faith in Christ. But any way you cut it, they were a people who were marked by prayer, which means they were a people marked by a devotion and dependence not only upon one another, but also upon God to do what only he can do. Church, I'll ask you, does this describe us as a church? Are we collectively a praying people? And I'm just going to be honest here. By and large, and I know we have pockets of our church that are devoted to prayer, but by and large, I have to say this is an area that we need to grow as a church. I say this because I know it's an area that I need to continue to grow in in my own life. 
But we need to grow here both individually and collectively as a church. I think there's far too many things that are before us that we are saying, how can we accomplish this? How can we do this? Instead of falling to our knees and crying out to God to do what only he can do. I remember when I first arrived at Harvest Point, coming up on six years now, there was a, a, a sweet couple who would, my stage, my right, so this side of the room and, and the school where we used to meet, would come about 10 to 15 minutes prior to every single service. And they would come in and clasp hands together, heads bowed, and they would pray together as a couple. They were praying for the Lord to prepare their hearts to receive God's word. They were praying for each and every one of you who were either here then or who have come since, praying for God to to grow his church in a healthy way, to bring people to saving faith in Christ, praying for the preaching of God's word. And week by week, that was their pattern. Now, they've since moved out of state. But I miss that example of their prayers in the weekly gathering. No program, no set structure, just arriving 10 to 15 minutes prior to the service and praying for the Lord to do what only he can do. What a beautiful picture that would was then and would be now a, a room filled with pray, a praying church before coming under the teaching of God's word together. This is something our family has felt convicted about. Again, I'm not making this a program. I'm not making this something that we, we're going to have a set structure for. But we're going to do our best to come 10 to 15 minutes prior to service and just begin praying before their time together. And if you would like to join us in here, we would love to have you every single week to do just that. But plain and simple, a healthy church is a praying church. Praying for one another. Praying for our community. Praying for the nations. Repenting of our sin. Praising God for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And asking his spirit to bring growth to what we continue to faithfully plant and water. Which brings us to our final point. A healthy church results in an evangelistic witness. Or a healthy evangelistic witness. See, I look at verse 42. And all the things listed out that the church was devoted to teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers. And there's nothing here that's going to make the best-selling list of a church growth book. (laughs) Not at all. But what do we see? We see that the 120 proclaimed the mighty works of God. Peter preached Christ crucified and risen from the grave. We see 3,000 by the grace of God come to faith in Christ and are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then what? These new disciples are taught to observe everything Jesus commanded, meaning the 120 
are just doing what Jesus told them to do. And now, these 3,000 are, guess what? Doing the same. And what's the result? Verse 47. The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Not just coming from other places. That didn't exist then, I know. But those who are being saved. Not 3,000 a day like Pentecost. But they consistently saw people repenting of their sins and following the Lord in believers' baptism. And the question is how? Again, no program. No special technique. No goldfish. No, it was a faithful devotion to God and to one another. See, notice the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. We must remember it was and is the Lord's work that grows his church. It was in his, his grace alone that saves. This can never be overlooked. It can never be understated. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But nor can it be used as an excuse for our unfaithfulness. Because too, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Because he willed to, yes, but because they were also devoted to his word. Devoted to biblical fellowship. Devoted to, to gathering together to break bread and devoted to, to prayer. This was the persistent and consistent pattern and rhythm of their day-to-day life as a church. They lived lives in awe of God, desiring to please Him. They were truly salt and light in the world that around, around them in every single way. They were truly in the world and not of it. And when their friends and their neighbors and their family and members witnessed the change that was taking place in their lives and in their conversations and what they were talking about, when they witnessed the love of God that they had and the love that they had for one another, do you know what all those around them were asking? What does this mean? Like, How do you explain this? And you know what these new believers evidently did? They're like, pull up a chair. Let me tell you. And they take what they're learning from the scriptures and they continually point those around them to Jesus. No advanced degrees. Not years of learning. A bunch of baby Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, hungering for God's word, faithfully devoted, gathering together, praying, and the church grew in health and in number. Oh, may this be said of us. Let's pray. Lord, as we take your word today and we continue to meditate upon these truths, I pray that we will not passively do so in one ear and out the other. 
that we will take these truths and that we'll evaluate our lives. Not evaluating the lives of others, but evaluating our lives individually. And in the process, our church collectively falls under that umbrella. But Lord, I pray that you will give us an ever-increasing hunger for your word. An even more generous and sacrificial fellowship. A devotion to the breaking of bread where Sunday is not something we just work into our routines when it's convenient, but it is what we base everything else around and move everything else around so we can be able to gather with the church. Lord, may we be a people of prayer, a people who are praying without ceasing for one another and for the mission that you've set forth. Lord, may we be faithful to plant, may we be faithful to water, and may we trust you to give the growth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.